Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 236. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Now, did I say there wasn't going to be a show this week? Well... Are you sure? Ah, come on, man. That was another one. No, I did say last week there wasn't going to be a show. Then I realised it's just really too much going on. And the, the, I've been not planning it for a while, but it's been kind of in since we started Starship's over. There's, a, there's been some figures and dates and everything kind of creeping into the Starship's over's calendar there. And this week is... We've had the three millionth download since Starship Sova started, really. So I couldn't really miss that. You know what I mean? So there you go. Round of applause. Yes, some podcasts out there get a million within a week. But it took us a few years. It took us since 2006. But that's a massive achievement for Star. You know what I mean? Three million downloads. You know, three million times people have listened to, to mine and Kieran's and every you know and Amy and Jim's waffle. How cool is that? So a little celebration for you know a starship so far. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a little short story by Stephen Silver, Mindy in the Shadows of Broadway. Then we have our Morgan with his Everything Fact article. Then we have another little short piece of writing by Nancy Fulder. Then right at the top of the tree, we have the main fiction, which is the fantastic Will McIntosh with Incompatible. Then just to round things off, we have first chapters, which is Celso Sisto's Particle Horizon. There you go. How about that? But first up, it is the beginning of the month as well. So how could I not do a beginning of the month? Sure. Skeet with Covering the Sofa. Skeet, who is this artist? Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners. This is Skeet Sciansky welcoming you all back for another segment of Covering the Sofa. Now, I've been creating the cover layouts for years now. This has allowed me a very close look at the artwork graciously donated by an array of very talented artists here on the sofa. As some of our original listeners may remember, I designed the first series of covers myself to complement the main fiction of each episode. Then Tony gradually approached other artists to contribute to the show as well. In the few years since, the caliber and quality has reached a level on par with the top sci-fi magazines available today. I would personally like to thank the many wonderful art contributors who have displayed their works here on the Starship Sofa and look forward to following illustrations to come. That being said, I'd like to introduce to you all this month's guest artist, Jan Ditlev Christensen. 
and give a bit of background on this phenomenal illustrator. Jan Ditlev Christensen was born May 14, 1980. He attended the Kent Institute of Art and Design in the UK and graduated as a production designer from the Danish uh, Design School, Denmark, in 2007. His work includes concept art, storyboarding, illustrations, and matte painting for various projects in the entertainment industry. Currently, he is working as a conceptual artist for IO Interactive Copenhagen on their upcoming game, Hitman Absolution. Look forward to that one. The illustration for this month's cover is a stunning piece depicting a land-based spaceport, providing a waypoint for planet-bound ships as well as larger vessels seen in the background. The character in the foreground on the flybike appears to be observing or patrolling the area. This cover was a cropped version of a much larger design, but you can find this work in its entirety and more from Jan Ditlev Christensen at www.janditlev.com. That's J-A-N-D-I-T-L-E-V.com. And I'd like to thank Jan for contributing to the show and hope to see more of his work here soon. That's all for this month's segment of Covering the Sofa. And back to you, Tony. There you go. Get a look at that bit of work by John. As soon as I see that picture, that's it was converted to my desktop. So that's actually at the moment, that's what I've got on the desktop. So John, thank you very much. So first up is a little bit of short fiction. Mindy in the Shadows of Broadway by Stephen Silver. Stephen Silver is American science fiction fan, bibliographer, publisher and editor. He was nominated for Hugo Award for Best Fan Writer 10 times and Best Fanzine 3 times without winning. Go on, Stephen, sir. Silva is a long-time contributor, editor to SF site and has written the site's news page since its inception. In 2003, co-edited three anthologies with Martin H. Greenberg, Wondrous Beginnings, Magical Beginnings and Horrible Beginnings which reprinted the first published stories of authors in the science fiction, fantasy and horror genres. In 2004, he became the publisher of IESFIC Press. 2009 and 2010, he edited two volumes of selected stories of Lester Del Rey for the NESFA Press. The first volume entitled War and Space appeared, like I say, in 2009. The second volume, Robots and Magic, was published in February 2010. In 1995, he founded the Sideways Award for Alternative Science Fiction and has served as a judge there ever since. He was on the Short Story Jury Award for the Nebula Award in 2002 and 2003 and 2006. Steve's also known as an online reviewer and has written several articles for science fiction fanzines as well as publishing his own zine, Argentis, which was nominated for a Hugo Award in 2008, 2009 and 2010. <laughs> Nicked it from you there, Steve. This story is narrated by our very own, remember, Ray, Ray Sizemore, yes. I'm kicking and streaming Ray back into doing work for Starship Sova. Ray, it's nice to have you back on board, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Mindy in the Shadows of Broadway by Stephen Silver. I am sitting in Mindy's coffee house, which establishment I have entered in order to escape the sudden onset of precipitation. I am thinking about the recent disappearance of several citizens along Broadway, which normally is not something to think about, since frequently citizens go on vacations, either because the authorities have decided their presence is needed upstate, 
or because the citizens are concerned that their presence may be required, or they owe scratch to people who may decide it is desperately needed. The current predicament deserves thought, because many of the missing citizens are not known to owe money and are not of interest to the authorities. I am just swallowing a bit of cheesecake when I look up to see Ricky the Snake come into the dining room and wipe the humidity from the shoulders of his jacket. I bend over my steaming cup of coffee, in the hopes that Ricky will not see me, for he is known to have a good memory, and I am afraid he will remember that I owe him a paltry bill or two, which I did not have on my person the ability to repay at that particular moment. My luck holds only too well, and Ricky comes over to my booth and sits down across from me. Without even asking my permission, he reaches across the table and takes my plate of cheesecake, and picks up a clean fork, and begins to slowly eat my dessert. "'Would you like some coffee, too?' I ask Ricky the Snake, and without saying yes and without saying no, he picks up my coffee and washes down my cheesecake. He places my cup in front of me and says, "'Next time, no cream.' I wave down the waitress and ask her to bring me two more coffees, one without cream, and wait while Ricky finishes my cheesecake, and the waitress brings a second cup of coffee and the pot to refill my cup Ricky has emptied. "'I presume you have an acquaintance with Miss Vera Marcal,' Ricky says, and I have to think before I realize that I do know Miss Vera Marcal, although I know her by the name Raquel Torres, under which she dances at the hot box, two shows a night and three on Saturdays. I answer in the affirmative, and Ricky tells me his story. For many months, Ricky is hanging around the hot box when he should be tending to the horses, but he sees Miss Vera Marcal and is instantly smitten by her charms. Ricky spends all his scratch on Miss Marcal, buying her flowers and chocolates and furs and gems and other things dames like her like. At the same time, Miss Marcal received these objects of affection from Ricky the Snake. She is also receiving similar objects from Singing Jake. Although many citizens believe Singing Jake receives his nickname from his ability to honor the Muse Aodi and his love of the oeuvre of Mr. Giuseppe Verdi, in truth he receives his name from a vacation at the government resort in Ossining, although Singing Jake insists to this day that he does not know the saddle he gives to the jockeys are lined with lead. Ricky the Snake tells me about some important business he has which takes him out of the city for a couple of days, and asks me to keep my eyes peeled for any sign of mischief done to his cause with Miss Vera Marcal by Singing Jake. I do not want to make Singing Jake upset with me, because he is known to still have some lead which was in the saddles, and he will use it to make life extremely unpleasant if people cross him. Ricky points out that I am in his debt to the tune of several bills, and he is willing to suffer a loss of memory if I do this small favor for him. Otherwise he will find himself in urgent need of this currency, and will need me to reimburse him immediately with cash or goods. I see his point, and agree to keep my eyes on Miss Vera Marcal, which is not an unpleasant proposition, since Miss Vera Marcal is curved where a woman should be curved, and has long black hair and big brown eyes. Ricky the Snake tells me at what time Miss Vera Marcal will finish her second show, and I indicate I will be waiting for her at the stage door with flowers. In a sign of gratitude that Ricky suffers from a loss of memory, I tell him I will pay for the flowers myself, and Miss Marcal will never know that the flowers did not come directly from Ricky. Ricky leaves Mindy's just before the waitress approaches with the bill. I ask her to put the meal on my tab, and she rolls her eyes until I drop a few bits on the table for her to keep and then she wanders off, and I wonder if the cheesecake and coffee will show up on my bill or if they will be conveniently lost. Now that night I am sure to arrive at the hot box well before the second show ends, for I do not wish to arrive after Miss Vera Marcal and Singing Jake go to eat a late supper without me having given Miss Marcal the flowers Ricky sends with me, 
or the cheesecake I add as an afterthought. I arrive just before the intermission of the second show, and I take a seat at the back of the room and look at the citizens who are enjoying the show. Singing Jake is sitting at a small table halfway to the front of the room, a small glass of what appears to be scotch whiskey sitting on the table. I think a scotch whiskey would be a good thing, but I also think I had better keep a clear head, since Singing Jake is known to frequently carry a noisemaker on his person, and I am unencumbered with the exception of a bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates. Instead, I order a cup of black coffee and insist the waitress not put anything stronger into it. When the intermission begins, I hand the waitress a note from Miss Vera Marcal, and I notice Singing Jake hands a paper to his waitress. I imagine he is also asking to be permitted to meet with Miss Vera Marcal after the show has ended. Although I look forward to spending time in her company, I do not look forward to spending the time in his company, for fear he will think I am also a rival for his affections, rather than an emissary for Ricky the Snake. The second act is very entertaining, with the dames on stage showing enough to be interesting to the audience, but not to the local constabulary. While Miss Vera Marcal has a good build and attractive features, she does not stand out from the remainder of the chorus, and I do not understand why both Ricky the Snake and Singing Jake feel she is their own. Any of the other dames on the stage are as good and interchangeable, and will cause a great deal less trouble than both falling for the same doll. After the show ends, I take the flowers and the chocolate, and I walk back to the stage door, where I find myself waiting with Singing Jake and several other citizens who have a desire to take a chorus doll for drinks. I can tell Singing Jake is looking for Ricky the Snake, and is happy not to see his face. But of course Singing Jake does not know that I am standing in for Ricky the Snake, and I see no reason to let him in on the secret before I deliver the flowers to Miss Vera Marcal. Miss Vera Marcal, like many dolls, takes her time after the show to get dressed, which is to be expected, but also to put on a makeup, which is a funny state of affairs due to the fact that these dolls are already wearing makeup when they are on the stage, but apparently it is important to change that makeup before they leave the theater, perhaps to ensure that nobody thinks they are dancers, which they are, and nobody will mistake these dolls for Albert Einstein, even in the worst light. Eventually, the dolls begin to let the citizens come back to see them, and Singing Jake goes back before I do. I see Miss Vera Marcal rush up to him, but as she gives him a big hug, I can see her look around the room for a sign of Ricky the Snake, who she does not see, on account of he is not there and I am. Singing Jake hands Miss Vera Marcal a box of chocolates and a bouquet of flowers just as I approach them to give her the same gift from Ricky the Snake. This is a gift from one who loves you more than I could ever say, I say, but who could not be here tonight on account of he is somewhere else. I finish after noticing the glare Singing Jake shoots in my direction. Miss Vera Marcal puts on a slight pout at this news, but she quickly smiles and invites me to join her for the late dinner she is about to have with Singing Jake. I try to beg off, and Singing Jake agrees, but she insists I join them and we go in search of a dining establishment which has the ability to serve three at this hour. I am certain Singing Jake selects the venue he chooses, Giorgio's Steakhouse, because he believes I will not go into such an expensive diner. Under normal circumstances, he is correct in such a supposition. Tonight, Miss Vera Marcal tightly grips my arm, and I wonder if she desires me, is sweet on Ricky the Snake, or just fears being alone with Singing Jake, which I can understand if she is a citizen who owes him money, but she is not. I have never before had the pleasure of dining in Giorgio's Steakhouse, since it is a place for high rollers and fat cats, and I am a near-impecunious scribe who writes about the pugilistic art and other activities of physical exertion. 
It is an eye-opening experience to see for the first time the posh setting in which successful citizens are able to spend their time. Much different than in the window of Mindy's watching other citizens and their dolls walking past. The waiters at Giorgio's Steakhouse are dressed in finery such I see only in the movie houses when I take some doll to show her I have culture and am not just another lout. Although Miss Vera Marcal does not act surprised by the extravagance of singing Jake, I can see by the way she looks around and her eyes get wide that she is also not used to such opulence, although singing Jake makes as if he dines here every night, which I know is not true, for I frequently see him enjoying the blue plate special at Mindy's with the other citizens. To say our dinner is pleasant is like saying fire is cold. Singing Jake looks at me with daggers, making me feel extremely uncomfortable, and I wonder if this is worth the bills I will no longer owe to Ricky the Snake. It is only made endurable by the occasional smile Miss Vera McCall flashes in my direction and the smile she flashes at Singing Jake. When we finish our repast, Miss Vera McCall suggests that we both walk her home. This is, in fact, the last thing I wish to do, as I am sure I can remember I have urgent business elsewhere if necessary, and Singing Jake is also obviously not too keen on the idea, but Miss Vera McCall insists on my company. As an upstanding citizen, I must put my own concerns behind me in the interest of the doll, so I end up walking her home in the company of Singing Jake. During our walk, I make sure to remind Miss Vera McCall and Singing Jake that I am only present as an emissary for Ricky the Snake, and I have no personal interest in either of their fortunes. I do not wish for Singing Jake to get the idea that I wish to horn in on his activities, and it is bad enough that I have already drawn his attention. Several of the street lamps on Broadway are out, for which someone should take the local authorities to task, but there is enough neon lighting the street that we are not in any danger of losing our way. Miss Vera Marcal tells us she lives in a rooming house a few blocks off Broadway on 8th Avenue. Apparently, neither Ricky the Snake or Singing Jake see fit to put her up in style, although perhaps they are waiting for the smoke to clear and for Miss Vera Marcal to select one of them. An interesting thing about Broadway is that although it lights up the world when you are on the street, darkness exists mere steps down any of a multitude of side streets. As we escort Miss Vera Marcal down the streets along which she guides us, the lights still shine along 45th Street, but the green and blue neon fades when we turn onto 8th Avenue. Since these disappearances have begun, I am worried about walking home alone, even though I live so close to the club, Miss Vera Marcal says. Singing Jake mutters that he will protect Miss Vera Marcal against any rogues who might try to harm her. As I am not particularly interested in coming between Singing Jake and his paramour, or even between Ricky the Snake and Miss Vera Marcal, I keep my lip buttoned. I wonder how Singing Jake plans to protect Miss Vera Marcal, since when he is not looking at her, he is glaring at me, but I do not say anything. Instead, I look around, and realize that with the neon light from Broadway gone, the street we are on is preternaturally dark. A cold wind is blowing, which is not strange for winter in the city, but it is, in fact, early autumn, and no such wind should be scheduled for many weeks. A shudder runs down my spine, and I turn to say something to Singing Jake and Miss Vera Marcal. What I see makes the shudder seem completely inconsequential. Singing Jake is standing still as a statue, with his mouth and eyes wide open. I cannot imagine what could cause such terror to manifest itself in him, but I do not have to imagine, for I see Miss Vera Marcal at almost the same moment. I should not say I see Miss Vera Marcal, for the creature I see standing where Miss Vera Marcal should have been does not resemble the soft curves and long wavy hair of that doll in any significant way. 
Miss Vera Marcal is nowhere to be seen, and I do not know if she runs off when this strange shadowy figure appears, which would be the intelligent course of action, or if this creature has enjoyed an appetizer of Miss Vera Marcal before turning its attention to a main course of Singing Jake and myself. The creature looks at Singing Jake and opens an enormous gaping maw, filled with razor-sharp teeth dripping with icarous saliva. I try to flee, but find my feet as firmly rooted to the pavement as a fire hydrant. The creature is no animal, but rather clearly is possessed of some sentience beyond that of instinct. It swings its head to look at me, while it reaches an enormous claw out to grab singing Jake. The creature's halitosis is overpowering, and I try to turn away from the horrible sight and terrible stench, but I find a sort of rigor mortis has set in, and I am incapable of any movement. Even as I come to that realization, my eyes begin to burn and, incongruously, my nose begins to itch. While I stand there, the abomination lifts Singing Jake as if he is nothing more than a child's rag doll, and, without allowing its fearsome eyes to wander from mine, it bites Singing Jake's head clean off and lets his blood flow into the monster's mouth. It dispatches the rest of Singing Jake's body with only a few more bites, and I know I will soon share Singing Jake's fate, and I wonder where Ricky the Snake is, and I wish horrible events to befall him, and that all his horses should throw a shoe. The fiend reaches towards me with a gnarled claw on the end of a powerful arm. I see an eerie glow in the monster's eyes, and I know I am not long for this world, or possibly any other. I think its breath could melt iron, but I am more concerned about what this thing can do to me. None of that now. I recognize the voice of Patrick Ellis, a bead cop who I on occasion speak to about the comings and goings of citizens, to use when I write my newspaper pieces. Although I recognize his voice and want to call a warning to him, I find that I am still held in the thrall of the creature which has dined upon singing Jake. The creature suddenly turns its attention from me and looks at Constable Ellis. Its grip on me loosens, and it lunges for the policeman, allowing me to hightail it around the corner. I feel a certain amount of guilt, because I know that I will never see Constable Ellis again, but I also feel relief, knowing that I will be able to see other people again. I do not stop running until I come upon Mindy's coffee house, and I duck inside. I sit at a back booth, far from my customary spot near the window, and I steady myself with a cup of coffee prepared in the Irish manner, which I linger over. The next day, I am again sitting in Mindy's coffee house when I look up to see Ricky the Snake approach my table just as he does the day before. I push my cheesecake across the table, for I know he will eat it whether I offer it or not. Sure enough, Ricky sits across from me and begins eating my cheesecake. After a couple of bites, he says, I hear a rumor that last night Miss Vera Marcal and Singing Jake disappeared together after her show at the hot box. Do you know anything about this? I am able to answer that the last time I see Singing Jake, I do not see any signs of Miss Vera Marcal being present. Ricky the Snake is not happy with my answer, but it is obvious he does not wish to call me a liar, and he lets the matter pass. After all, there are a lot of dames on Broadway for him to pick and choose from. Word on the street is also that a cop, Patrick Ellis, disappeared last night. The story is he is a dirty cop, and left before something could be pinned on him. I decide to write a column defending Policeman Ellis, for I believe him to be as honest a cop as ever walked a beat, and do not wish to see his memory defamed, for his death saved my life. The morgue at the rag where I work is filled with strange stories, which the editors call human interest, because they are not news stories, 
but they are sure to pique the curiosity of the citizens when they turn their attention from their own lives for a few moments. I spend many days in the morgue, looking through these stories to see if anything can explain the strange creature which ate Singin' Jake and Officer Ellis and scared off Miss Vera McCall. Eventually, I am able to put together a theory of that strange night based on the scribblings of a fellow scribe from, of all places, Providence. The creature I see that night is a member of a race of elder beings who is intent on enslaving all humans. This creature takes the shape of Miss Vera McCall and quickly decides to find a host more influential than a dancer at the hot box. It is deciding between Singing Jake and Ricky the Snake when it sees me and decides a reporter gives better odds. Before it can possess my body, it is disturbed by the lamented Patrick Ellis, allowing me to flee. Even if the creature no longer looks for me, I do not feel safe as I walk the streets of Broadway and decide a respite at the warm resort in Hialeah is in order, for the creature can be in possession of any citizen or doll, and I will have no hope of recognizing it. Perhaps it will find someone more to its liking than a humble scribe, but if so, who knows what evil it can perpetrate on this world. And Ricky the Snake's amnesia is cured, and he remembers the scratch I owe him. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Stevens. Steve, thank you very much. Next up is our very own Morgan Saletta. Morgan, everything, Squire. Stay tuned for another transmission of Life, the Universe, and Everything. Reflections on science, science fiction, and philosophy. This is Morgan Saletta. Hello and welcome. Coming up, we're going to talk about Frank Herbert's Dune, Larry Niven's Integral Trees, The Guy Hypothesis, James Cameron's Avatar, and more. This is a continuation of the last two installments in which I've been discussing what I've loosely termed planetary ecology. In the first installment, I spoke about Earth's two closest siblings, Venus and Mars, and the way they were imagined in science and science fiction. And in the second part, I spoke about pollution, population, and climate change. Today, we're focusing on imagined ecologies and alien worlds. Some of my listeners may remember that I addressed the scientific question of alien worlds in the very first ever installment of this show. We finally got confirmation of an extrasolar planet in 1988, and as of today, some 763 exoplanets have been identified. But discovering a planet is one thing. Discovering life, and by definition, an ecology, is another thing entirely, and for the moment remains the domain of science fiction and speculative sciences like exobiology. Today, I'm going to focus on the way science and science fiction have imagined life on planets outside of our solar system, here in the Milky Way, or in galaxies far, far away. But as I've mentioned before, many of the ideas that went into both scientific ecology and its social and political brethren, such as environmentalism and so on, have much older roots, as do the imaginary ecologies and alien worlds of today's science and science fiction. I've mentioned Kepler's work Somnium before, published in 1634, 
and held by many to be a forerunner of science fiction, it was a fanciful description of the Copernican solar system. At the end of the work, Kepler speculates about life on the moon and points out that it must have developed very differently because of the different physical environments. In past episodes, I've also spoken extensively of the mirror-like aspects of science fiction, suggesting in particular that science fiction at its best is often a reflection on human nature and human society, what it means to be human, and what it means to be a sentient living being. In particular, I've spoken about the Great Hall of Mirrors, in which I imagine mankind gazing back at himself in, for example, the images of gods and heroes, and to which science and science fiction have added the ape, the alien, and the android. Imagined alien ecologies are another such mirror, and like imaginary aliens and androids, are a sort of curious double mirror in which we reflect on ourselves, but also one in which we reflect on what alien life or a sentient machine might actually be like. There are two principal routes science fiction writers take in imagining realistic alien ecologies, not including such works as Barsoom, where scientific ecological principles play no role in the world building. The first is more rare and involves a rigorous, scientifically plausible attempt to construct a truly alien world in a non-Earth-like setting, a type of ecological world building pioneered by such science fiction writers as Hal Clement during the 1950s in works such as Clement's Mission of Gravity, featuring the planet Mesklin, an extremely dense, oblate world inhabited by methane-breathing mesclinites, centipede-like creatures adapted to the high gravity, and which some listeners might remember from Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, the classic 1979 illustrated field guide to alien species. In my opinion, one of the best, if not the best, example of this type of ecological world-building is Larry Niven's Integral Trees and its sequel, The Smoke Ring, both classics of hard science fiction. The ecosystem Niven creates is about as unearth-like as possible while still maintaining a breathable atmosphere. Instead of a planet, Niven imagines a gas torus a million miles thick, orbiting a neutron star, Voy, along with a gas giant, Goldblatt's planet, or gold for short, where the thickest part of the torus, the smoke ring, is a breathable atmosphere. The neutron star is also orbited by a sun-like star, which provides sunlight for the smoke ring's ecosystem. It is a world of sky and freefall, of floating jungles and enormous 100-kilometer-long integral trees, where tidal forces in the opposing tufts create a sort of pseudo-gravity. The smoke ring is inhabited by many flying creatures, most of whom have trilateral symmetry to allow them to see in all directions, and it was colonized by a small group of humans some half a millennia prior to the action in the book, and who have developed prehensile toes as an adaptation to life in the integral trees and floating jungles their descendants now inhabit. I'll read a short passage from the first chapter to give you an idea of Niven's world-building skills. Gavin was 14 years old as measured by passings of the sun behind Voy. He had never been above Quinn Tuft until now. The trunk went straight up, straight out from Voy. It seemed to go out forever, a vast brown wall that narrowed to a cylinder, to a dark line with a gentle westward curve to it, to a point at infinity, and the point was tipped with green, the far tuft. A cloud of brown-tinged green dropped away below him, spreading out to the main body of the tuft. Looking east, with the wind whipping his long hair forward, Gavin could see the branch emerging from its green sheath as a half-clomter of bare wood, a slender fin. Harp's head popped out, and his face immediately dipped again out of the wind. Lathan next, and he did the same. Gavin waited. 
Presently their faces lifted. Harp's face was broad, with thick bones, its brutal strength half-concealed by golden beard. Lathan's long, dark face was beginning to sprout strands of black hair. Harp called, We can crawl around to Lee of the Trunk, east, get out of this wind. The wind blew always from the west, always at gale velocities. Lathan peered windward between his fingers. He bellowed, Negative! How would we catch anything? Any prey would come right out of the wind. Harp squirmed through the foliage to join Lathan. Gavin shrugged and did the same. He would have liked a windbreak, and Harp, ten years older than Gavin and Lathan, was nominally in charge. It seldom worked out that way. There's nothing to catch, Harp told them. We're here to guard the trunk. Just because there's a drought doesn't mean we can't have a flash flood. Suppose the tree brushed a pond. What pond? Look around you. There's nothing near us. Boy is too close. Harp, you said so yourself. The trunk blocks half our view, Harp said mildly. The bright spot in the sky, the sun, was drifting below the western edge of the tuft, and in that direction were no ponds, no clouds, no drifting forests. Nothing but blue-tinged white sky split by the white line of the smoke ring, and on that line, a roiled knot that must be gold. Looking up, out, he saw more of nothing, faraway streamers of clouds shaping a whirl of storm, a glinting fleck that might indeed have been a pond, but it seemed even more distant than the green tip of the integral tree. There would be no flood. Gavin had been six years old when the last flood came. He remembered terror, panic, frantic haste. The tribe had burrowed east along the branch, to huddle in the thin foliage where the tuft tapered into bare wood. He remembered a roar that drowned the wind and the mass of the branch itself shuddering endlessly. Gavin's father and two apprentice hunters hadn't been warned in time. They had been washed into the sky. While the book does have its flaws, it is essentially a coming-of-age story, and on occasion the character development is a little bit flat. I'm willing to overlook these flaws because the world-building is so vivid and the story is, frankly, a great adventure in a completely alien world. According to Brian Stapleford, whose essay, Science Fiction and Ecology, was invaluable for today's discussion, this type of esoteric world-building, in which the world is very much a character in its own right, has an inherently limited audience because it relies both on the reader appreciating the behind-the-scenes world-building and the writer's ability to vividly describe it so that it becomes real in the reader's imagination. A much more common tactic pioneered by Clifford Simak and others, is the use of Earth-like planets in what Stapleford calls ecological puzzle stories, an alien but not too alien world. By the 1950s, galactic empires filled with what Stapleford calls Earth-clone worlds were a standard feature of genre science fiction and gave authors considerable scope for using alien worlds as ecological, social, and historical mirrors to reflect on our own planet Earth and human society. On these Earth-like worlds, variables such as orbit, climate, and land masses are tweaked, along with flora and fauna, to create an alien, yet not too alien, world, allowing for ecological themes and puzzles, but also freeing the author to concentrate on character development and socio-cultural world-building. And, as ecology has developed as a science and as a spectrum of associated political philosophies, science fiction provided an ideal medium for both scientific and socio-political thought experiments in this arena. Of course, at times, imagined alien ecologies and Earth-like clones are merely a setting for science fiction adventures, lending little more than an alien backdrop for a human story. But at other times, Earth-like planets, like aliens, androids, and apes, are a mirror by which science fiction writers, or filmmakers for that matter, can reflect back at us a vision of our own planet and humanity's relationship to it. 
easily the best-known work featuring an Earth-like world, ecological themes, as well as masterly socio-political world-building, is Frank Herbert's Dune, published in 1965. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. The known universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV, my father. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice expands consciousness. The spice is vital to space travel. The Spacing Guild and its navigators, who the spice has mutated over 4,000 years, use the orange spice gas, which gives them the ability to fold space. That is, travel to any part of the universe without moving. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you, the spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. A desolate, dry planet with vast deserts. Hidden away within the rocks of these deserts are a people known as the Fremen, who have long held prophecy that a man would come, a messiah, who would lead them to true freedom. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. That's from the opening scene of David Lynch's 1984 version of Dune, whose sets, costume design, and casting I love, but which I was otherwise frankly disappointed by, and whose use of special effects has aged rather badly. The Sci-Fi Channel's miniseries is, in my opinion, the much more faithful adaptation of the book. Herbert's interest in ecology and inspiration for the Fremen's projects on Dune was his journalistic work, which took him to the Oregon coast, where the U.S. Department of Agriculture was experimenting with sand dune stabilization. While basically Earth-like, Dune is nevertheless presented as a plausible web of interlinked ecological connections, and the book was influential in promoting a global ecological perspective, selling approximately 12 million copies since 1965. Of course, as with all good science fiction, Much of Dune is a metaphor, a mirror for our own society and the world we live in. Another well-known example of an Earth-like planet is Heliconia from the Heliconia Trilogy by Brian Aldiss. Heliconia orbits the star Bellatrix, which, as part of a binary star system, orbits the giant star Freyr in an enormous ellipse causing Heliconia's seasons to be both extreme and hundreds of years long. Aldiss's world is particularly well-crafted in terms of astronomy, climate, and geography, But there is also another important aspect for today's discussion, and that is the influence of James Lovelock's Gaia Hypothesis, which has had a profound impact on science fiction, ecological and earth sciences, and ecological philosophy as well. James Lovelock outlined his Gaia Hypothesis in the 1979 book Gaia, A New Look at Life on Earth. The basic hypothesis, now sometimes held to be a viable theory, is that Earth is a complex, self-regulating, cybernetic system in which Feedback loops, unconsciously influenced by life itself, act to ensure that the system is maintained at an optimum for life itself. 
Lovelock used an imaginary alien ecology, in this case a computer simulation of a planetary ecosystem called Daisy World, to illustrate how this might work. The program, written by Lovelock and Andrew Watson, simulates a very simple ecosystem on the planet Daisy World, which is populated by two varieties of daisy, one white, the other black. The Daisy World planet is in orbit around a sun whose solar output varies as it evolves along the main sequence, a crucial part of the simulation and its intended demonstration. The albedo of the Daisy World planet, that is, how much light is reflected or absorbed, and its energy balance, are affected by the Daisy population because the black flowers absorb light and give off heat, while the white flowers reflect it. The simulation shows that the surface temperature of Daisy World stays relatively constant through a range of solar outputs, because of competition between the daisies, which have different temperature tolerances in the simulation. Thus, the imagined ecology of this simplified alien ecosystem demonstrates how classic selfish Darwinian processes can produce global self-regulation, in theory at least. Science fiction writers and ecological philosophers have been drawn to a much more mystical version of the Gaia hypothesis, sometimes called Strong Gaia or Omega Gaia, because it combines elements of the French Jesuit paleontologist Teilhard de Chardin's theory, theory of cosmogenesis, described in his 1955 work, The Phenomenon of Man, and in which life is seen as coalescing into a conscious omega point. In Aldous's work, Heliconia, and the Earth for that matter, are living organisms with whom the sentient inhabitants share a psychic connection. In Isaac Asimov's 1982 Foundation's Edge, two of the protagonists visit the mysterious planet Gaia, which is a conscious superorganism whose ultimate goal is to extend itself to the entire galaxy, forming the much larger entity, Galaxia. And, of course, this idea will be familiar to many from James Cameron's 2009 film Avatar. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. We have an indigenous population called the Navi. They are very hard to kill. This is why we're here. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. Their village happens to be resting on the richest deposit and they need to relocate. Those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. I'll be honest, I'm an unapologetic fan of this movie, which is a visually brilliant piece of world-building art, as well as being a good old-fashioned adventure. And if the ecological theme seems a bit obvious to some, it's clearly not obvious enough since we're still raping the rainforest and otherwise soiling our nest. But polemics aside, Avatar is a classic and frankly beautiful example of ecological world-building, which is also deliberately serving as a mirror for planet Earth. It is also an example of ecological mysticism, influenced by the Gaia hypothesis, of the sort I've just been talking about. Here's Sigourney Weaver describing the world in the International Featurette, which was released prior to the movie. Every living organism on Pandora has bioluminescent qualities that set the night aglow. Plants, animals, and marine organisms share the same trait, emitting light in breathtaking patterns. From what scientists can tell, the Pandoran ecology works and communicates like a nervous system suggesting a symbiotic relationship between all things Pandoran. Perhaps the best symbols of this relationship are small luminescent wood sprites, which are the seeds of the Vitraya Ramunong, 
the Tree of Souls. The tree is sacred to the Navi and believed to be the heart of the deep connection of all life. Another science fiction writer who explores ecological issues through imagined alien ecologies in depth is David Brin, and in particular, his Uplift series. In the galactic civilization of the Uplift universe, in which many sentient life forms exist, hydrogen breathers, oxygen breathers, mechanical life, quantum life, and so on, the Galactic Institute of Migration leases world to various races for specific lengths of time, after which the planets must be returned to nature and allowed to remain fallow. The second Uplift trilogy features, among other things, a group of Sooners, populations that have illegally colonized the world Jijo and their attempt to lead an ecologically sustainable existence. Of all contemporary science fiction works covering ecological as well as evolutionary themes, I think Brins are probably the best as well as the deepest, and I highly recommend reading them. Before I leave you, I should also mention that this is one area where science fiction writers have been well ahead of mainstream science, astrobiology, or exobiology, has only recently been accepted as a scientific discipline in its own right. And the discovery of extremophiles on our own planet, thriving in hostile environments where no sunlight ever reaches, for example, has raised the very real possibility of truly alien ecologies, possibly in our own backyard, in the dark icy oceans of Europa, perhaps, or deep underground on Mars. And beyond that, the galaxy itself may very well be teeming with life we can, for the moment, only imagine. This has been another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. Thank you very much, Morgan. I've been tinkering around with these effects there and sound effects. Thank you, sir. Hope everything is fine and well over on your side of the pond with your little brood now. Next up is a short story by Nancy Fulda called Godshift. Now, this story is taken from this new collection that's in development called The Numbers Quartet. And it has Nancy Fulda in it there, Elliot Dibodeau, Stephen Gaskill and Benjamin Rosenbaum. And what I like about this is all these kind of writers have a bit of a science background and have come together to kind of examine a dozen important concepts in kind of mathematics and physics through just tiny little short stories. These stories originally were posted up there on Daily Science Fiction. I'll give you a little heads up for Nancy. Nancy Fuldar is the Phobos Award winner, the Vera Hinckley Matthew Award recipient and two-time Writers of the Future finalist. Her near-future space exploration story, The Undiscovered Country, was jointly honoured in Bain Books and the National Space Society. Nancy's writing has appeared in Asimov's Apex, Digest, Strange Horizons, Clark World and many others. I'll put a little link on to Nancy's site. This is narrated by Adam Port, who... Adam, I'm never going to get that surname right of yours. Adam does the Tube Skates review, but he's thought he'd dip his toes into a little bit of narration, so thank you very much. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... God Shift by Nancy Fulda. Infinity. Unlimited extent of time, space, or quantity. The quality of being infinite. God acted on September 13, 2014. Teenage brothers had shot up an elementary school in Southern California, decimating the classrooms and brandishing semi-automatic weapons. They herded teachers and children into the wire fence schoolyard, 
shouting demands in the face of an impromptu negotiator. A SWAT team was on the way. The negotiator, a balding administrator with crooked spectacles, must have said the wrong thing. One of the gunmen lurched forward and slammed his foot against the administrator's gut, dropping the older man to his knees. Gripping his weapon with both hands, the teenager trained the gun's muzzle on the administrator's head. For an instant, the world seemed frozen. Black-rim clouds swirled against the heavens. A deafening thunderclap rattled the buildings as twin lightning bolts arced from the angry sky. Flashes of electricity etched the swing sets and flat-roofed buildings in stark lines of glare and shadow. The teenagers fell to the ground, guns thrown from their fingers, wisps of smoke curling from their skin. They were not breathing. 175 meters beneath the Franco-Swiss border, in the bowels of the Large Hadron Collider, Ileona Varga watched the breaking news story on her laptop. The fading rolls of thunder prickled her skin even through the tinny speakers. On the grid console behind her, Dr. Pierre Lefebvre stared, fascinated, at the hypnotically flaring dots that would tell him whether he and his research team had produced the world's first experimental validation of string theory. There, he snapped his fingers and waved in Ileona's direction. D plus 2.5705. Note the time. We might have something. Ileona committed the numbers to memory and stood, unable to contain her restless energy. The feeling was back again. A vague sense of wrongness that had permeated each of their research runs over the past three days. It was a fleeting, tentative thing, hard to put your finger on. Like walking into a familiar room and finding all the furniture moved one inch to the right. Ileona paced, her fingers twining restlessly at the tip of her long, dark ponytail. She stopped next to Pierre and said, We must end the research. We cannot perform another run. Hmm? Dr. Lefebvre's eyes did not stray from the console. 119 seconds of luminosity left. The news. Something strange is happening. Coincidence. People get struck by lightning all the time. The other events? Were they also coincidence? Bengal tigers attacking drug dealers, bank robbers stricken with stomach cramps? Over the past three days, there have been 165 cases of criminals brought to justice by natural forces. Ileona tapped the newspaper lying discarded next to Lefebvre's coffee. And all of them, every last one, occurred during one of our five-minute luminosity peaks. There, 4.1301. Check it during the analysis. Pierre, have you been listening to me? Are you serious, Ileona? Cancel an international research effort that took four years to arrange? Give up the search for the extra dimensions predicted by string theory just because a series of absurdities occurred while we were accelerating particles? Ileona bit back a sharp remark. It wasn't smart to snap at your thesis advisor, especially not when you were sleeping with him to make sure your name actually ended up on the research papers. Irritated, she left Pierre to his flashing pixels and continued prowling the room. On the news stream, a pudgy woman had fallen to her knees, thanking God for miraculously saving her little boy's life. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just provided experimental validation for string theory. Pierre tossed the charts he'd been examining onto the table, 
and smiled at the jubilant whoops from his research team. Eleona, he noticed, did not join in the applause, choosing instead to straighten the mound of disordered printouts in front of her. She didn't seem to have discussed her concerns with the other grad students, which was a mercy. He didn't have time for superficial nonsense. He watched Eleona fidget with her necklace, sliding the crucifix back and forth along the chain. He probably should not have slept with her. They always got arrogant afterwards. But he had such a weakness for students who were so obviously dazzled by his brilliance. And he was brilliant. He had practically proven string theory, and it had only required half of their scheduled time at the collider. He could use the remaining runs to refine the search, uncurl more than one dimension at a time. He stopped, frowning. Unfurling the dimensions had been Ileona's idea. String theory predicted that space-time encompassed ten or more dimensions, most of them curled up so tightly as to be unobservable. Even the Large Hadron Collider was unable to generate enough energy to perceive them. Ileona. Ileona had first suggested using membrane topologies to uncurl localized segments of higher-order dimensions, but only because she'd been steeped in his research and enlightened by their conversations. He, Pierre Lefebvre, was a mastermind behind this breakthrough. Ileona caught up with him in the hallway after he dismissed his students for lunch. We have our evidence, she said. The results from today's run will probably earn you a Nobel Prize, so we don't need to do another one. Ileona, if this is about that nonsense on the news... Do you believe in God, Pierre? What kind of question is that? Because if you ever believed in him, really believed, you'd have asked yourself, eventually, why he allows horrible things to happen in this world. You'd have asked yourself how God can let children suffer, why he doesn't come down and do something about it. Well, according to every religious nut on the soapbox, he did something about it today. Yes, he stopped wrongdoers in the act of doing wrong. But those teenagers were victims too, Pierre. Or do you suppose they would have terrorized that school even if they'd led peaceful, affluent lives in which no one ever mistreated them? I'd say it's a pity your God didn't intervene earlier. He could have prevented the whole incident. That's what I'm afraid of, Ileona said. Look, this morning's paper. Two schoolgirls suffered acute asthma attacks while cheating on a math test. Four minutes later, in a different country, a father was struck by a meteor while yelling at his son. It all happened during the luminosity peak. During those five minutes, somehow, God punished all sinners. Co-occurrence does not imply causality, Ileona. People see what they want to see. And that fluke with the lightning bolts got everyone riled up. When a man falls dead in the street, it's not hard to find something he'd been doing wrong five minutes earlier. Eleona took a deep breath. There's more. Pierre raised an eyebrow. I've been going over the grid results from the other colliders. Yesterday, at exactly the same time as our research run, other scientists' research went awry. They think the disparity in their numbers is a measurement error, but look! She held out a sheaf of graph paper covered with scribbles. All of the results agree with each other if we assume a change in the generally accepted physical constants. Pierre's brows drew downward, but he grabbed the papers and began flipping through Ileona's notes. 
Physical constraints don't change. That's why they're constants. Well, yesterday they did. For exactly five minutes, the gravitational constant decreased by 0.003 times 10 to the negative 11. The speed of light increased by 512 meters per second. And the weak nuclear force appears to have fluctuated as well. Preposterous. But Pierre could not take his eyes from the scratchy rows of numbers. Now do you understand why we must stop the experiment? No, this is surely a miscalculation. But if it isn't... Well, if it isn't, then it's a scientific achievement even greater than we'd hoped. He kept looking at the numbers. You may be onto something here, Eleona. We must continue to investigate. To Pierre's surprise, his student ripped the papers from his hand and tossed them on the floor. There's something bigger going on here than our careers, Pierre. It's possible that by uncurling the high-order dimensions, we've actually changed the nature of the universe. The implications are... You think this is just about being the first one to write a research article? You think I'm so small and petty-minded? Fine. Believe that if you wish, but the research will continue. Pierre strode away without giving her a chance to reply. Arrogance. They were all so blasted arrogant. He spent the afternoon reproducing Eleona's research. She'd miscalculated the change in the gravitational constant by 0.001 times 10 to the negative 11, but her other numbers seemed accurate. Sometime after midnight, he put down his pen and stared toward the ceiling. String theory was the search for the atom all over again. The infinitely small, the unobservable item responsible for the behavior of reality. Pierre had devoted his life to it. And now, in his genius, it appeared he had discovered far more. For millennia, man had struggled to comprehend the structure of the universe. Now, for the first time, he had the power to manipulate it. The possibilities were astounding. Out in the hallway, a newscast prattled about angelic manifestations, dramatic and unexpected weather patterns, and a 95-year-old man who had spontaneously combusted during a court hearing, presumably because he had been bearing false witness. Pierre could not hold back the smile that pulled at his lips. Well, well. Perhaps God really was reacting to the famous Dr. Lefebvre's experiments. But if so, it was only because he was jealous. Eleona had not slept. By the time she gathered with the other students to observe the next collider sequence, her heart was hammering like a rabbit's. Along the collider's 27-kilometer ring, 1,600 superconducting magnets flared into life, hurling protons at velocities only 3 meters per second slower than the speed of light. And it was back again, the sense of wrongness, as if all the light in the room suddenly came from a different direction, instinctively, Eleona reached for her crucifix. Her lips shaped the words of the Lord's Prayer. As she recited the third line, an overwhelming presence filled the control room. Roiling, energy-laden words seemed to crash through her body. I am here. Eleona drew in a staggering breath. It was the voice of God as she had always imagined it powerful, burning, like the rush of a thousand waterfalls or the breath of a hurricane. The rest of the team jolted at the voice, heads whirling. Feng Xiao's coffee mug shattered against the floor. Even Pierre glanced away from the grid console. Mike Lanston 
rushed at his clothes wide-eyed. What in the name of g- Ileona slapped a hand over his mouth, lest he take the Lord's name in vain and end up dead of a heart attack. Fear of God did not begin to describe her emotions. Releasing the crucifix had disrupted her prayer. The presence withdrew as quickly as it had come. They watched the rest of the run in breathless silence. Protons raced. Around the planet, shoplifters lost their hands. Adulterers expired. Toddlers played, unharmed, with poisonous serpents. And Elio Navarga finally understood what they'd done. I don't know what you're all so upset about, Pierre said, clasping his hands behind his head. The way I see it, you religious types have spent the last 4,000 years asking God to meddle in human affairs. He spread his hands. Well, you got your wish. Eleona shook her head. It's not right. It's terribly, terribly wrong, and it must stop. The other grad students clustered behind her, pale-faced. It could not have been easy for her to convince them to turn against him. Most of them weren't even convinced of Eleona's latest theory. But Pierre was. There was a dizzying perfection in it. If one supposed that God existed within the fabric of the universe, was the universe, for lack of a better description, and if one used a large hadron collider to alter the physical constants that governed the universe, then one must, of necessity, have also altered the nature of God. Mind-shattering. The experiments must stop, Eleona said with conviction. We are under the management of CERN, we will tell them what we have observed, and we will ask them to shut down the collider. Lefebvre laughed. Stop trembling in your shoes and consider what we've done. God the Almighty, the infinite being, has been changed by the slight unfurling of a hidden dimension. Mankind has become the master of his own fate. Lefebvre was pacing now, agitated, almost euphoric. Ileona said, you don't understand because you have never believed. The being that manifests during our research run is not the God I have always worshipped. It doesn't care about perfecting human souls. It doesn't even care about justice. In that sense, it's a lot like you, Pierre. She filed past Lefebvre and into the hallway, followed by the clumping tread of the other students. Pierre stared after them in subdued astonishment. Well, there was just no pleasing some people. How like the petty masses to plead for God's intervention and then complain when he took action. A shame that the changes brought on by the collider's measurements were so fleeting. Ileona's M-brain manipulations were only able to uncurl high-order dimensions in tiny, highly localized areas, rather like letting down the hem in just one corner of a jacket. Pierre froze. But perhaps a corner of the jacket could be permanently creased. If he raised the energy output and adjusted the alignment of the magnetic fields, he checked his watch. The next luminosity peak would occur in 12 hours. Highly unlikely that Eleona and her student protesters would be able to navigate the layers of upper management before then. To be the man who changed God. Chortling, Pierre hurried to his computer console and adjusted the dynamics of the next research run.
Thank you very much, Adam and Nancy. And I've got all the stories out of this little collection there. So eventually, you know, I'm going to just keep on popping them into Starship Sofa so we'll hear the whole lot. So look out for that. Next up is Will McIntosh with his Incompatible. Will, honestly, for me, is like he's got a favourite writer. You know, I was kind of rooting for Brightsicle when that's, you know, and actually won the Hugo Award. And he's now kind of made that leap over to been a full-time writer there, and he's just had out Soft Apocalypse, or came out last year. Actually, looking at Will's website, 10th of April, when he went full-time, and he's also, as well, got a story in the new Asimov's Possible Monsters. And when I was just mentioning, actually, I've just realised on his site as well, Brightsicle has been optioned for a Film 4 production for a feature film. Film 4 is one of the England's, UK's kind of film companies there, which they did, Slumdog Millionaire, Four Weddings and a Funeral and The Crying Game. You know, from just like you say, one story, and Will's also signed up for a two-book deal with Orbit to write a novel based on a short story, Bryzigal as well. And one of them's based on the short story Defenders, which was published in Lightspeed in August. And in February, just gone, he had a new novel came out called Hitchers. You know, like you say, if you haven't heard of Will McIntosh, Get a load of some of his stuff there, please. Pop over to his site. There's bits and pieces on there you can kind of follow it through. Now, this story is narrated by... <laughs> Mrs. Santoro. Yes, to Celia. Larry's wife. And I just... Larry's been, you know, sneaking a bit of Cecilia's work on Tales to Terrify you over there. And I kind of heard Nancy's voice then. I went, that's just... Yes, we'll get a bit of, get a bit of Cecilia over on the Starship sofa. So... What can I say? That, you two over there, Larry and Cecilia, thank you so much. And I got an email back off Larry straight away. I suppose I'll have to edit it then. <laughs> Cecilia, never mind, Larry. Thank you so much for doing this. Tell him just to get on with it, man. Isn't that right, Larry? Hmm? I put a link on the Cecilia site. Please pop over there and say hello. Just a fantastic narration. Just lovely. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Incompatible by Will McIntosh. The Methodist Church was selling pumpkins. There were thousands of them, thousands of setting suns spilling across the straw-covered grass, stacked in rolling piles and propped on makeshift plywood displays. This was a power place. Layla would be safe here. She got out of the car and waded in among the pumpkins, absorbing the goodness, the realness of them, letting fond memories of Halloween's past wash over her. The dots shrunk and receded. The squeeze of anxiety receded with them the sweat on Layla's palms drying in the crisp fall air. The respite was sweet. She drank it in, inhaled deeply and easily, picking up a hint of burning leaves. The scent of burning leaves was good, too. It was not as powerful an ally as the pumpkins, but Layla appreciated all of her allies. She checked her Scooby-Doo watch. It was 2.15. 
the sale would be open for at least another three or four hours. The trick would be to spend all day among the pumpkins without appearing to be a total nutcase to the two women running the sale. Layla returned to her car and pulled a camera out of the back seat. She began snapping photos of the pumpkins, moving about as if she knew what she was doing. It felt good to be out. Once it got cold and she had to close the drive-in for the season, she could go days without seeing a single soul. Even at the drive-in, the dots could ambush Layla if she wandered to just the wrong spot, like the drainage ditch that ran along the woods, or the little room around the back side of the snack bar that stored the cleaning supplies. The dots were black, blacker than the background on which they hunched or floated or whatever it was that they did. It didn't help Layla to think about them, didn't help to face her fear. She'd always heard that you should face your fears, but this fear only got worse when you faced it. A guy in a red wool cap was looking at her. He was trying not to be obvious, looking away whenever her gaze drifted in his direction, trying to look without being a creep. If he did it too much longer, though, Layla would still think he was a creep. She rolled a big squat pumpkin into her lap, focused to get some close-ups, enjoying the cool weight of it pressing her thighs. The guy had stopped looking at her. He was sorting through a barrel of little pumpkins, rotating them in his palm as if choosing produce in a grocery store. He had shoulder-length hair and round linen glasses, a lupine face that was odd but not unpleasant. Not that it mattered what he looked like, given Layla's issues, given the dots. Her earliest memory is of the dots. She's in bed, her mother leaning over her, tucking her in as she says her prayers. Mommy wants her to say a special prayer for Auntie Julia, who has gone to the stars. When Layla closes her eyes and thinks of the stars, instead of seeing bright flickering lights, she sees black dots. They're humming and bobbing, and they scare her so badly that her breath freezes in her chest. They are so bad. Layla senses this from the first moment. So bad. The guy was staring off into the distance now, exhaling cold smoke. Layla surreptitiously snapped a picture of him, then turned away. It was getting cold. She pulled gloves out of her coat pockets while scanning for good photos. An infant in a lime-green windbreaker pointed at a pumpkin by her feet, then looked up at her mother, who said something in an encouraging tone that was drowned out by a passing truck. Layla snapped some photos of them from a respectable distance. It felt so good. If only the girl had a little red wagon to pull her pumpkins in, that would have shrunk the dots to specks. The mother and daughter picked out a pumpkin and left, but the guy stayed. Layla was pretty sure he was staying because of her. 
He was pointedly not looking at Layla now, keeping his back to her as much as possible, strolling among the pumpkins, his hands bunched in Jean's pocket. His jaw was tense from the cold, his pointy nose pink. She kept expecting him either to leave or hit on her. It was awkward, both of them taking such an inappropriately long time to choose a pumpkin. Layla lifted a medium-sized pumpkin by its stalk and took it up to the women sitting in lawn chairs behind a rickety car table. She was hungry anyway. She'd grab something to eat and then come back. She handed one of the women a tin. The other opened the green cash tray to get her change. I, I hope you don't mind me spending so much time here. She lifted her camera. I freelance for magazines, she lied. Oh, no, that's wonderful, one of the women said. They were both overweight, with wonderfully motherish clothes and hairstyles. Would it be okay if I come back in a while to catch them in a different light? Layla asked. The woman waved away the question. Stay as long as you like. We enjoy watching you. Layla thanked them and took her pumpkin to the car. Her heart began to thump as soon as she pulled away, as soon as happy orange spheres were replaced by strip malls, telephone poles, cyclone fencing, bad things, things that nourished the dots. The dots were stirring. She headed toward Boyd's drugstore, which had a bit of power. She'd have a tuna salad sandwich and a cup of tea, then return to the pumpkins. Icy blast of anxiety hit her, one on top of the next. She tried imagining she was in a place with incredible power, a museum of power places where every turn revealed something wonderful, a shiny new good humor ice cream truck or a cozy comic book store filled with vintage richy rich and hot stuff. Sometimes it helped a little to imagine power places, but not today. The dots pulsed, their baritone thrumming registering at the roots of Layla's molars and deep in her belly. To Layla, it was the sound of fear, cold and metallic and mindless. She covered them with phantom hands, struggled to suppress them, felt them slip away as if they were greased. There were two of them. Sometimes there were three or four. Once there had been eight. She'd been in English class in middle school on the day of eight, as she came to think of it. She'd wet her pants when she sensed them all there, wherever there was, crammed into her mind's eye. Urine had dribbled off her chair and onto the formica floor, and she'd scurried to the nurse's office, clutching a notebook over the front of her pants. Were the dots even aware of her? Did they have awareness at all? Or were they just natural phenomena of some sort Layla didn't know? She pulled into the drugstore parking lot. It was closed. It was Sunday. Of course. Layla took a deep breath, tried to quell rising panic. Where else could she eat? It was too late. The dots were bulging, losing their two-dimensional flatness, glistening, sweating fluid as black as deep starless space. Layla hurried back to the pumpkin sale. 
she wasn't hungry anymore. She'd never let them grow big enough to find out what would happen. All she knew was that it would be bad. It was not a fear to be faced, not this one. Oh, no. Not even her parents had understood. They'd been sympathetic, they'd indulged her, but they'd never understood. It was their one and only failing as parents, as far as Layla was concerned, that they did not understand that the dots were not just in her head. They were in her head, but they weren't only in her head. The guy in the red cap was still there, half sitting on a wooden rack, his hands braced behind him, a pumpkin beside him. He glanced at Layla, who was squeezing the steering wheel, which was covered in a pink fuzzy steering wheel mitten. He looked away. This was too much. It was just too strange to continue hanging around in such close proximity to someone without acknowledging him, and Layla wasn't going to let him drive her away. Twenty minutes with the pumpkins would shrink the dots enough that she could make it home if she wanted to. But she didn't want to go back to her little apartment over the silent drive-in. She loved her apartment. It was her ultimate power place. But you can get tired of any place if you spend too much time there. Layla grabbed her camera and drifted around, hugging herself in the growing cold, circuitously navigating toward the guy who was at the moment the only other customer. She stopped a few feet from him, leaned out over a clump of misshapen pumpkins, and took a few bird's-eye shots. She glanced his way, as if she just realized she was in his vicinity. "'You must love pumpkins as much as I do,' she said. He looked at her. Layla thought he was going to look over his shoulder to make sure she wasn't talking to someone else, but he didn't. Instead, he smiled and nodded. "'I love their color,' he said. "'They're perfectly orange, an orange only pumpkins can be. "'No orange dye number two added. "'They fire off so many good memories,' Layla said. Mm. "'He lifted the one sitting next to him, held it in his lap. "'And I love the shapes. "'They all approximate round, but none ever quite get there.' "'He swept his long bangs out of his eyes.' They fell right back into place, obscuring his eyes. I bet if you averaged them all together, though, the resulting pumpkin would be perfectly round. I think that's how nature works. The perfection is always in the entirety, never in the individual. Layla nodded, not sure how to respond to such an abstract observation. I'm Byron, by the way, he held out his hand. Layla shook it. She liked shaking hands with gloves on. There was contact, but with a buffer. Risk and safety rolled together. There was a pause, a moment when they could either continue talking, continue the dance, or declare the short conversation a success and drift apart, becoming strangers again. Layla was torn. She craved talk with someone new, though this guy said odd, slightly unnerving things. On the other hand, she was finding that talking to Byron left a crackle of energy in the cold air. It gave her flashes 
of lying in freshly fallen snow, in that moment just before the first flap of her arms and legs formed a snow angel. But it could not become a date thing, or even a friend thing. She couldn't hide the dots, and she was finished with trying to tell people about them and sound sane at the same time. It wasn't possible. Well, good luck in your search, Layla said. Safer just to say goodbye, she decided. Oh, Byron said, looking surprised. Maybe that Layla was ending their conversation so soon. You too. Layla wandered off, feigning interest in a particular pumpkin close to the road. Out of the corner of her eye, she watched Byron run his gloved hand over his face, glance toward Layla, then off toward the rough white stone wall of the church. There was an earnestness about him, an appealing familiarity to his mannerisms despite his oddness. She knew she'd never met him before, but he was one of those people who fit easily into a type, who reminded her of a number of other people, though she couldn't describe what they all had in common. There was comfort in people like that. Layla's last boyfriend had been Joseph. He hadn't easily fit into a type. He'd eventually tired of canned beefaroni and watching the same three dozen movies on VHS, but it was the dots that sealed the deal. He'd initiated an argument as a way to escape with honor soon after she told him why she couldn't go with him to his office's New Year's Eve party. If it had been a Halloween party or even Christmas, there might have been enough allies to ward off the dots. She could have dressed as Edward Scissorhands if it had been Halloween. If it were Christmas, she could have spent the night in the shadow of the tree, watching the flick of the colored lights reflect off strands of tinsel while drinking spiked eggnog. But New Year's held no allies for her. Layla let their orbits cross again. So what do you do, Byron? I'm an artist, a designer, landscape architect, he said. All three? Layla asked, amused at how his answer was broken in pieces. Byron shrugged. They're all one thing. How about you? I own a drive-in out on Route 301. Interesting. I've never met anyone who owns a drive-in before. Byron cupped his hands and blew into them. So why did you decide to become a landscape artist? I noticed that there were fewer and fewer places for people to care about in the world. I wanted to push against that tide. That's a great phrase, Layla said. Places for people to care about. I've never thought about it in those terms. But you know what I mean. A cold mist puffed from Byron's mouth as he spoke. It's all becoming parking lots and corrugated metal siding, median strips, cut-up squares of lawn. It deadens your soul. There's no there, there, Layla said. Byron grasped her forearm as if she'd said something terribly profound. Exactly. His hand lingered a moment longer than it should have, and Layla let it. The contact, muffled by his glove, felt good. We don't all care about the same places, though, Layla said, thinking of her power places. That's true, 
but we all agree on the places that are not worth caring about. We too, yes. They're killing us, he said. They're killing me, that's for sure, Layla said. She took a step backward toward her beetle. I'd better get going. It was nice talking to you. He smiled, but looked disappointed. You too. Layla decided she would watch Superman when she got home, the Christopher Ree version, of course. Lois, was it really worth risking your life for ten dollars, two credit cards, and a lipstick? Layla? She turned. Byron took a few steps to catch up with her. I've really enjoyed talking to you, he said. He licked his lips. They were chapped from the cold. Would you mind if I called you some time to talk some more? It was clear that he'd rehearsed it in his head a few times before saying it. Byron swallowed, looking like a 16-year-old nerd who just asked out a cheerleader and knew he was about to be rejected with extreme malice. And nothing could have melted Layla Moore. Sure, she said, brushing her hair back over her ear. Do you have a pen? Byron called the next day. No two-day delay for the sake of cool. Just a guy on the other end of the phone who was so nervous that he started the conversation out of breath. It's Byron from the pumpkin patch? Assuming she'd already forgotten him or got so many calls that she needed prompts to keep her suitors straight. Shut-ins who had to leapfrog from power place to power place or risk being consumed by dots that no one else could see did not field many calls from suitors. Layla lay in her bed, facing the wall that held her cereal box collection, and talked to a near stranger. It wasn't a brief call to ask her on a date. He'd meant what he said about wanting to talk. He asked what her favorite things were and what she kept on her dresser. He said he loved the sound a stream made when it tripped over stones and the wet chuckle horses made with their loose lips. He wished dogs could fly, because he couldn't imagine anything quite as fabulous as the sight of a brown Labrador skimming the treetops, that look of wind-blown ecstasy on his face. You have a vintage laugh, Layla told him. There are vintage laughs? Listen to people laughing in old movies. They have different sorts of laughs than people do today. Laughs go in and out of fashion, same as hats. We just don't notice. She didn't add that vintage laughs held a hint of power. Just before they were to hang up, Byron asked her to dinner at Chabella, one of those restaurants where they serve salmon drizzled with a perfect pentagram of amaretto reduction on a huge expanse of white plate, a place where everything is clean lines and jazz piano, where Layla had no allies. She suggested the snack bar in the bowling alley instead. Byron balked. Of course he did. Who besides Layla wanted to eat at the bowling alley snack bar? And now Byron probably sensed that Layla was not without her weak points. She was cute in a fatigued, adrenal exhaustion way. Her honey hair split and frizzed, yet still long and full, but she was the pinnacle of high maintenance. Layla regretted giving Byron her number. She just wanted to get off the phone. Then he suggested they have a picnic at the pumpkin sale. 
perfect. With permission from the ladies behind the card table, they made a circle of pumpkins and spread a red and white checkered picnic blanket in the center. Layla mostly ate the food she'd brought, peanut butter and marshmallow fluff oozing between slices of white wonder bread, sliced apples mixed with walnuts and raisins. She noticed that Byron mostly ate what he'd brought, gorgeous sushi rolls, each a symmetrical work of art, an edible mandala, and raw carrots and celery in alternating rows, offset by a half-sphere of hummus. So, what does your work look like? Layla asked. He leaned back on his palms, shrugged. Different. For me, it's all about how a landscape feels, the emotions I feel. You'll have to email me some photos so I can see it. I've got a better idea, he said. Let me show you my house. I've been working on the landscaping for ten years. I'd like to, but some other time, Layla said. Are you sure? Couldn't we go for just a while? Look. He held out his hands, palms up, as if to show he wasn't armed. I'm not the sort of person who'd make a pass or anything. I'd just like to show you what I've done with my house. If only that was her greatest fear right now, that this perfectly guileless man might try to kiss her. I know that, Byron. It's, it's not you honest. She started packing up. She felt like such an idiot. She was blowing it. I'd better get going. Maybe we can meet again tomorrow, Byron asked. I'd like that, she said. Could we meet here again? It was apparent that the women at the pumpkin sale were bursting with curiosity, but they didn't ask why Layla and Byron kept returning. This time they met for drinks and dessert. Byron unveiled a polished steel tumbler of hot rum cider and produced two crystal goblets from his coat pockets. Layla produced a celery green Tupperware container. She opened the lid with a ta-da and a flourish. She'd made oatmeal raisin cookies. The cookies were perfect circles, the raisins evenly spaced. Byron covered his heart with his palms. They're gorgeous. I love them. You haven't eaten one yet, Lila said. They're pretty, but they taste like dung. Byron smiled, poured cider. Steam wafted from the goblet. She caught a whiff of nutmeg. Out of habit, she checked the status of the dots. They were hard, black, frozen peas. Byron took a cookie and put the whole thing in his mouth at once. That made sense. If he bit the cookie, it would no longer be round. It was obvious Byron had more than a touch of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Layla didn't mind. She found it endearing, the way his fingernails were perfectly manicured half-moons and the top button on his red and green plaid shirt was buttoned. Layla sipped the cider, scooted closer to Byron under the artifice of being in easier reach of the cookies. A couple wandered by, the woman carrying a sleeping child. They nodded hello and continued walking. What a romantic idea, she heard the woman say. She felt like a normal girl starting a romance with a normal, wonderfully awkward man whose head was filled with crazy, fascinating, poetic ideas. 
"'You're a cider demigod,' Lila said, "'hoisting her glass and holding it aloft for a toast. "'Byron lifted his glass, clinked it to hers. "'If you were Native American, your name would be "'Bakes Perfectly Round Cookies.' "'They drank. There was a pause then, "'a sort of pause that was the perfect moment for a first kiss.' She considered leaning in to signal Byron that a kiss would not be unappreciated. Before she could decide whether that was a good idea, given the dots, Byron kissed her of his own accord. One of the women behind the card table giggled delightedly, then stifled it abruptly. "'You don't want to get too involved with me,' Layla said, their faces still close." Trust me on that one. Byron frowned. Why not? Are you married or something? Layla shook her head. No, I just have a lot of issues. I'm one of those extremely neurotic chicks your mom warned you to stay away from. Byron swept at his bangs. Well, since we're being honest, you can't hold a candle to me when it comes to issues. No one holds a candle to me. He reached for her hand. Layla splayed her fingers. It was getting dark. The longleaf pines were black against a silver-gray sky. The smell of pine and the sharp, cold air reminded Layla of Christmas. The combination had power. I have an idea, Byron said. Let's both take a chance. A chance to get closer. Tell me your biggest issue, the worst thing about you. I promise I won't judge you no matter what it is. He swept his free hand, banishing all doubt. I promise to like you just as much. Then I'll tell you mine. Layla smiled wanly, shook her head. Don't want to. Come on, please. Layla just kept shaking her head. Byron reached out a tentative hand, brushed her hair back. Trust me. There's nothing you can say that would make me not like you. Layla squinted at him. He had no idea the things she could tell him. It felt like a challenge, like a knight of the round table handing her a sword and saying, Go ahead, give me your best shot. I'll bet you can't knock me off this stump. In this particular challenge, Layla's best shot was a 200-pound warhammer that could not only knock him off the stump, but sent him sailing far over the castle wall. Layla disentwined her hand from his. All right, I'll play. I'll give you my best shot, and you see if you can handle it. Byron nodded. I can handle it. Layla smirked. Poor little sucker. She closed her eyes, took a deep breath. Imagine the most terrifying thing you can the thing that crawls in the corner of your worst nightmares that leaves children screaming in the night because their two open minds haven't learned to block it out yet, and they can't even describe it to their parents sitting at the edge of the bed because there are no words for it. It just is. Byron's expression was strange. It wasn't a patronizing look or and your point is, look, Byron looked alarmed. 
It wasn't the sort of look Layla was used to seeing at this point, although it also wasn't particularly promising. She pushed on. The hope she had allowed to creep in now all but dashed. Then, imagine this thing doesn't go away as you grow up. In fact, it gets worse. It's always with you, always fighting to rise to the surface. And imagine you never get less terrified of it. You're certain that if you let it grow big enough, it will do something horrible, but you don't know what. Byron's entire face was trembling. The skin around his eyes was twitching so badly, Layla was afraid he was having a seizure. Are they black circles? he asked. Layla's mouth fell open. I don't have to imagine it, Byron said. I live it every single day of my life. What are your power places? Layla asked, eyeing her display of family photos pinned haphazardly by the thousands, covering most of an entire wall. Places that are simple and beautiful, clean, harmonious, Gardens, but not wilderness. Wilderness is too wild. I hate beige, hate clutter. Can't abide walls made of concrete blocks or that corrugated aluminum siding. What about you? Drive-ins, white ice cream trucks that play circus music, Frankenstein, the original one with Boris Karloff, skee-ball, greeting card stores, and the greeting card departments of drugstores, King of the Road, black and white tiled floors, snowmen with button eyes and carrot noses, cereal boxes, primary colors. What's King of the Road? Byron asked. An old song, really old. My father used to play it when I was little, and it was old then. Does there have to be cereal in the cereal boxes? No. What do those things have in common? Byron asked. They all give me the feeling I get sitting in front of a fire sipping cocoa. The dots can't stand the warmth. It goes back to what we learned to love in childhood, Byron said. When the dots first formed, yeah. They racked their brains for power places that overlapped. Most were transient. Pumpkin sales. County fairs. But different parts of them. The problem was... Most natural places were deadly bad for Layla. Gardens were cold, bleak, awful places. Byron couldn't watch movies or TV. His dots loved them. They couldn't even agree on a restaurant. Byron could only eat where the orange sauce was drizzled over the salmon with the aesthetic of a Pollock painting, with a side of slaw white as starlight curled into springs set on ponds of romaine. Layla did best eating in places that shouldn't serve food. Convenience store hot dogs rotating on wire racks washed down with Slurpees. Chicken and dumplings ladled into questionable cups at the county fair. Foil-wrapped barbecue sandwiches that materialized out of nowhere passed across a worn Formica counter at the dusty auction barn out on Highway 24. How often could they possibly need to replenish those cans of tuna stacked on that dusty shelf? 
or the mayonnaise sitting inside that barely breathing refrigerator. What was your diagnosis? Layla asked. Obsessive compulsive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, you? Delusional parasitosis. You're kidding, right? There's a specific name for people who have imaginary parasites? Layla's memory flashed. Sitting on a stuffed chair in a marble-floored psychiatrist's office, talking about the dots. She blocked it with practiced ease. Neither Paxil nor Xanax had been allies. Look it up. Your psychiatrist didn't do his homework. Do you ever wonder if that's all they are? Delusions brought on by mental illnesses? Byron asked. Every day. They feel real, but that doesn't mean they are. I wish there was some way to know for sure. I'd like to know I'm not crazy. I'm not sure which would be worse, discovering that I'm crazy or knowing for certain that they're real. What do you think they really are? Byron asked. I don't like to think about it. It scares me. All of the possibilities are terrible. When I was younger, I used to think they were dead people. Then I had a period when I was sure they were psychological, repressed memories, maybe. Then I went the science fiction route, beings from another dimension, portals to another dimension, a horrible dimension, one that would drive you insane if you ever glimpsed it head-on. We're only glimpsing shadows. Byron, stop. Layla got off her bed, moved a bunch of Star Wars action figures onto the bed, one handful at a time. They just are. They don't have to make sense to us. They're no more unlikely than we are. She got back on the bed, surrounded by power totems to banish her dread. I'm sorry, Byron said. I didn't say it to scare you. I just think we have a better chance of beating this if we can understand what we're fighting. Since I found out about you, I've been feeling more hopeful. Maybe the two of us can find a way to beat them. It's nice to have an ally, Layla said. He was right. Layla knew he was right, but she hated thinking about the dots. Okay, let's make a list of possibilities, everything we can think of, no matter how stupid. Number one, they're dead people, Byron said. When I was little, I was sure they were the devil, and that if they got too strong, he would take me to hell. Number two, Satan, Byron said. Between them... They came up with some fascinating ideas, including Layla and Byron were AI programs on a starship. The world was a delusion to keep them from going insane. The dots were them sensing the real world. They called this the Matrix Theory. The dots were implanted by aliens who had abducted them when they were children. The dots were cancer. Their awareness of it was a rare, undocumented ability. They were serving as wombs for the dots, keeping them safe, gestating them. When Layla and Byron felt unsafe and agitated, the dots were in danger of birthing prematurely. None of the theories seemed likely. The pumpkins were gone. It was October 31st. They should have kept them out one more day at least. Layla kept her car running for the heat, surveyed the barren straw, the planks of wood stacked by the church's driveway, ready to be hauled away. 
the dots started to complain. In the rearview mirror, she saw Byron approach, the whir of his scooter rising, disappointment bordering on despair registered on his face. She got out. Now what? Layla said. Byron wrapped his arms around her, kissed her. I don't know. Maybe we can meet a few times a day, just for a few minutes each time. Layla looked at their feet, their toes inches apart. We have so much in common, but we're incompatible in the most fundamental way. We could get married, Byron said. What? Layla said. Byron smiled, though it was a distressed smile. His dots were rising. Layla's heart was hammering, too. Where can we get married? she asked. At a pumpkin sale next October. Then what? We can't live at a pumpkin sale. As soon as the pumpkins started to rot, the dots would be on us. We can't afford to fly in fresh pumpkins year-round. So we live apart most of the time. So what? I'd rather see you a few minutes a day and talk to you on the phone than not have you at all. I don't think I can do it. It hurts too much. She started to cry. The dots took advantage, swelling obscenely. Please, don't, Byron said. I have to. We have to. You know we do. Through Layla's bedroom window, the drive-in stretched out. A field of gray gravel surrounded on three sides by trees. A big white screen at the far end, leaning, looking eager to feel the color of a new release. Layla sat staring, stroking a pumpkin in her lap, the one she'd bought the first day she met Byron. Everything made her think of Byron, even things that had nothing to do with him. Packets of sugar made her think of Byron. Her drive-in still had old-fashioned speakers set on poles, even though almost none of the customers used them anymore. Byron would use them if he took her to a drive-in, if he could. She put the pumpkin on her dresser. Byron had asked what she kept on her dresser, grabbed her keys, and headed out. She needed to feel really cold air, the kind you only felt when you drove fast with the windows open in November. She headed out Route 301, away from town. She drove fast. The dots woke. She'd never hated the dots more. She turned her hate on them like a blowtorch, imagined their edges curling before they burst into flame. Somewhere, she'd read that anger was more powerful than fear. Maybe she could hate the dots to death. They hummed, cold electric threats that tore through her anger like knives through paper, exposing the solid core of fear underneath. She kept driving. She drove as long as she could until it was too much and she had to turn back. Instead of going home, she headed to the bowling alley for a burger and fries on a white paper plate with ruffled edges, the comforting sound of bowling balls crashing into heavy wood pins in the background. The familiar crunch of gravel under her tires welcomed her home to the drive-in. Fear receded, but the sadness sat in her chest like a block of concrete. Byron's scooter 
was leaned up against one of the speaker poles. Layla threw the car into park, leaped out, thrilled to see the scooter, even if seeing him would only reopen a wound that would have to start healing all over again. Byron? Unless he just arrived, he wouldn't have much time. He was in the kitty park, lying curled in a snowdrift beside the teeter-totter. Leaning up against one leg of the swing set was a little chalkboard. On it, Byron had written, I'll beat them or die trying. I love you. He was shaking all over, his eyes distant, his hands clenched in fist. Layla held his head and called his name, but he didn't respond. She gripped him by the shoulders and dragged him toward the door. Halfway there, she stopped. How could she let him suffer the fury of hell while she sat sipping cocoa in her power place? What he was doing was so brave. No one but her could understand just how brave. If he succeeded, if he beat the dots without dying or losing his sanity, they would still be confined by Layla's dots. It wasn't fair to Byron. I love you too, Byron, she said. She pulled him toward her car. They would face their demons together. She drove to the state park, went a mile or so down a dirt access road, and pulled over. The dots were already swelling, already humming. She spread a pile of blankets beside the road and dragged Byron out of the back seat. He was locked in a tight ball, whimpering. She arranged him in the blankets, then turned and threw the keys into the woods and lay down next to him, wishing she'd gone to the bathroom before leaving the drive-in. Her worst nightmare was coming true. She would likely die or go insane or be swept into some horrible black dimension where she would be trapped for eternity. But maybe Byron would be there with her. At least she would finally know what happened when the dots grew. She was so tired of running from it. The dots were already holding court. They were sickly swollen and vibrating. The sound resembled atonal, droning, miserable music that repeated in a tight loop. With each throb, the dots moved closer to the lens of her mind's eye, and the sound got louder. Amidst the droning, Layla made out voices what were they saying? It sounded like, count to ten, or maybe, cut the tape. No, it was shifting, saying one thing over and over, then morphing into some other similar phrase. Now it was, come to them. They were so close. She wanted to move away from them, but didn't know how. She felt nauseous. She wanted to go home. For the first time, Layla saw them close up. Black pools, too close to be seen as complete circles. She cried in fear as they loomed closer. She thought she could make out faces on them, rudimentary slits for mouths and angry angled slashes for eyes like demons in a child's nightmare. Was this about hell and demons after all? The demon faces twitched, and Layla recoiled, almost certain now that she was possessed and on her way to hell. 
trailers for sale or rent. A voice cut through the horror show in her mind. It was Byron, singing in a weak mumble. Bushing room for fifty cents. He'd butchered the line, but still, Layla lapped it up like water in the desert. I'm a man who's mean by no means king of the road. He was trying to save her, Layla realized. A lifeline, tossed by a drowning man. No, stop it, she said. We live or die together, she wanted to add, but didn't have the strength. Byron stopped. Layla could feel the warmth of his hip pressed against hers. She wanted to reach over and touch him, brush his hair, but she felt like she was falling into a black pit, like she was having the worst drunken bed spins anyone had ever had. She struggled to open her eyes, tried to focus on Byron, on the buttons of his winter coat, to stop the spins. The sunlight hurt. It leapt straight to the backs of her eyes. Even squinting, rays of light stabbed like lightning bolts. With a terrific effort, she raised her hand and shielded her eyes from the light. Oh, God, I can see your dots. One was bulging from his ear, like a fat, round slug. Another was squeezing out of the corner of his eye, inflating as it pulled clear. Byron managed to peel open one eye. A weak cry of terror fluttered from his chapped lips. They were pulsing in time with Byron's heart. Layla closed her eyes. The faces on her dots had vanished. She wondered if they'd really been there before or if she'd only imagined them. And what did it mean to imagine something on something else that you might be imagining? She was insane, wasn't she? Of course she was. In the middle of terror and noise and the staccato flashing of the dots, a tiny oasis of clarity nodded sagely. This was full-blown schizophrenia. It was manifesting after years of warning, a classic case replete with paranoia and visual and auditory hallucinations. Byron jerked, grunting in fear. Layla opened her eyes. One of them had squeezed free of his eye. It rolled, crawled across his cheek, still expanding, and plopped onto the ground beside him. It moved off into the brush, now a glistening ink-black beach ball. The thrumming was deafening. It shook the branches of the trees. Byron's mouth was cranked open wide, but Layla couldn't hear his screams. Four dots were pushing out of him, and those were only the ones she could see. A second broke free. The first was now huge, the top lost in the treetops. Its edges were blurred as if it were vibrating. It popped. Her head was in Byron's lap. He was stroking her hair. Hang on, it's almost over, he said. Layla pried an eye open. A dot was bulging obscenely from her ear, she moaned. Hang on, just a little longer, Byron said. His voice was hoarse but stronger. We had it all wrong, all this time. Layla thought her nose was growing. It was another dot. 
squeezing out through her nostril. The pain was excruciating. Take deep breaths, Layla. It'll all be over soon. Sing the song, she said. Please, this is intolerable. Layla, listen. He shook her gently. Those aren't our power places. They're their power places. He had to raise his voice now. The dot was getting louder. Every time we left those places, the dots drove us back to them because they can't survive away from them. The dot popped free of Layla's ear. She recoiled in horror as it rolled across the blanket. It dropped into the grass, expanding by the second. See? Byron shouted over the thrumming, pointing at it. It's trying to get to a power place, but it's too late. The dot grew and grew, and then it popped. For one awful second, Layla was doused in a spray of electric terror. Then it was just gone. She felt one crawling down through her nasal passage into her throat. She breathed through her nose as best she could as it expanded in her mouth. It felt slick against her tongue, bulged like a black bubblegum bubble from her mouth, and finally popped free. One by one, they crawled out of her and popped until there weren't any more. It was quiet, except for the wind and the leaves and the papery flap of a hawk taking flight. We're free, Byron said. His face was pressed into her hair, his breath tickling her ear. Free. She watched the hawk rise over the treetops. Give me your keys, Byron said, rubbing her shoulder. I'll take you home. I threw them in the woods. You threw them in the woods, he chuckled. Okay, what's the plan? I guess we walk. Walk. They could walk. Free. But not yet. Let's rest for a while. It had been so long since she'd been in the woods. Besides the little road, there was nothing in sight that was not alive and growing. It had a different sort of power, energizing rather than calming. She soaked it in. I have a new theory, Byron said. Layla rolled on top of him. Tell me. They were parasites, rare ones, that haven't been identified yet. They took up residence in our brains when we were kids and fed off the feelings we got when we were in our power places. When you think certain thoughts, you stimulate certain locations in the brain. More blood flows there, and there are more chemical transactions. Leah considered. I'll buy that, she laughed. We can rule out hell and dead people anyway. For a while there, I was sure one of them was my dead mother, Byron said. It was so awful, so awful, Layla said. She shuddered. Byron lifted his head and kissed her. It's over now. There you go, Cecilia. Thank you very much. This story, just out of curiosity, if anyone's interested to know, was published in 234th edition of Interzone. That's the May-June 
2011 edition. Andy, big thank you to you over there as well for letting Starship Sofa do this. Do pop over to Interzone, just picking some fantastic stories. So it's now first chapters and we have Celso Sisto's Particle Horizon. From the blood and dust of New Jerusalem, the Legion of the Lightbringer wages a galactic war against those who would replace their god. Now the time has come for the Union of Free Worlds to make a stand. The front line is the idyllic asteroid world of Angelhaven, where the greatest mind in human history has discovered an elemental power with far-reaching implications, a power that both sides will do anything to harness. Marine Commander Gomez leads the Crack Union Task Force. An unrelenting warrior driven by revenge and a need for answers, he hides a strange ability neither science nor religion can explain. Outnumbered ten to one and stalked by a mysterious nemesis, he will need the help of people willing to make unspeakable sacrifices to unravel Angelhaven's secret. As the Legion invasion begins, unknown eyes watch with interest. My name is Celso Sisto. I'm the author of Particle Horizon. This novel has been my labour of love for many years, and now it's finished and I want to share it with science fiction lovers like myself. It's um, really a love letter to some of my favourite authors, like Peter F. Hamilton and Yokinobu Hoshino and many others. Um, and I think it asks some interesting questions about artificial intelligence, faith, uh, what it is to be human, as well as being a good old-fashioned adventure um, with plenty of high-tech action. It's available in the Amazon Kindle store for $3 or one ninety nine in the UK. So please try the free sample. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed writing it. Here's a short extract from the first chapter. Prologue. Do we really consider them ready? We believe their resolution juncture has come. We have doubts. They are fiercely divided. They are strong, cruel, indiscriminate, restless. It is their ardour that we sort out. Ardour is of no consequence if they destroy themselves before transition. There is nobility within them. We can prove it. Our watchers have observed them since their awakening. We see no salvation there. We cannot complete our judgment fairly until we are among them. Allow us to finish our final appraisal. We believe we are making progress with our emissary. We will present our testimony soon. We retain doubt. We wait. Chapter 1 A warm gust of wind buffeted them on the loading platform. Almost two miles above the ground, the thin aluminium railings of the deck turned the wind into a forlorn whistle. Above their heads glared the intense glow of the light tube, a bottled artificial sun which ran the 15-mile length of this asteroid world's axis, warming and illuminating its hollow interior as it spun slowly in space, a giant cylinder on a spit of light. The world of Angelhaven existed on the inner surface of this vast cave, shielded from the vicious radiation of the neighbouring gas giant by a billion tonnes of rock. A great city, fields and villages all clung to the cylinder's green interior, held in place by the centrifugal rotation of the rock, an approximation of gravity giving the inhabitants of this unusual habitat the same weight they'd have had on an E-type planet. Except up here, in the hot updrafts near the axis, here the centrifugal force was weakest, and clouds formed a glowing sleeve around the axial tube, diffusing its light and casting shadows on the ground far below. Here they felt almost no physical weight, the bulky rifles they carried felt like toys, but the old man's heart felt the weight of fear and responsibility for his young companions, like a lead anchor 
pulling him into the abyss. Is everyone ready? This is it. Janichi Amura looked into the shining eyes of each of the five scared young faces kneeling around him. His own narrowed, resolute, a mask of determination feigned for their benefit. He didn't have reflective membranes on his eyes like these kids. His were protected from the hot white glare of the vast light tube above by a pair of old-fashioned reflective goggles. He pushed the rectangular ammunition cartridge into the open spine of the AC-30 rifle. There was a dull click and an electric whir as the magazine fed a compressed chain of 200 expanding armour-piercing slugs into the firing mechanism. He snapped the spine shut and the small blue ammunition counter on the top lit up, muzzle automatically extending and locking into position. Everyone else did the same, though with considerably less efficiency, trembling hands all thumbs. Amura waited patiently. He knew they were just children, startled by this stark exposure to his previously unspoken military past, but eager to prove their worth. The only danger they were used to was that of gliding the tube every night after school. The tube was the name the glider kids gave to the narrow band of zero-g at the centre of their cylindrical home, a funnel of cloud shrouding the light two miles from the ground all below. He used to watch them with genuine admiration through binoculars from his office in the New Caldea police station, looping down into the gravity well and then spiralling upwards on the thermals into the tube above. The combination of weightlessness and turbulent air currents enabled them to perform amazing 360s, perfect loop-the-loops, spiralling starfish. The light from the axis reflected in their coloured butterfly-like wings like a precocious swarm of fireflies buzzing around a 15-mile-long glow stick. Most of them decorated their wings with light reactive paint. Glide meets were a kaleidoscope of blurring colours. Each glider competed to have the most striking hues and to weave the most complex patterns in the air. Ayalana and her brother Keone were the best body gliders of all. They were respected and admired by all the other kids, and even the adults who came along to the bigger meets during the low-trade season, when the Axis traffic was at its lowest. Amura was a regular spectator at first, but soon had his own flight harness made up. Keone had pitied this insatiably curious old man and taken the unprecedented step of teaching him to glide. At first the others protested at having an old man lurching alongside them in the tube every weekend, but after a while they took to him with some affection. Having the police chief of New Caldea as the surrogate uncle of your gliding family wasn't without its advantages. With a dead wife and no children, Amura grew to adore these kids. Ayalana had once told Amura that her old Hawaiian name meant to soar like the hawk, that her long-deceased parents must have foreseen her future in the skies of Angelhaven. How inappropriate the bulky grey automatic rifles looked in the hands of these beautiful, innocent children, glowing brown skin tanned by fusion light, eyes bright. Amura choked back bitter tears. They had to resist the Legion at all costs, even at the expense of innocence. The invasion had begun, and the Navy would not get here in time to stop the coming slaughter. He had to hope that Keone could look out for his little sister in battle, as well as he had done throughout their carefree lives in Angelhaven. He looked at the kids, focusing on Ayalana and her brother. Coils charged. Propellant fuses primed. Keone's reflective membranes momentarily flickered open, flashing his glittering green eyes at the old man. We've done this a million times, Junichi. Don't worry about us. We're not afraid of those barbarians. We're sick of waiting. Let's go hunting. Amura sighed at the teenager's exuberance, wishing he could mask his eyes from the horrors they were about to see. He hated himself for putting those guns in their hands, 
there was no choice. The Lightbringer did not discriminate between young and old. His little surrogate family was the only airborne infantry their little resistance could muster, and they'd need all the help they could get against an estimated invasion force of a thousand battle-hardened Legion troops. He'd selected the five best flyers, the bravest. When we land, you split up and take cover behind the cranes. Don't forget these AC-30s kick hard, so stay low and keep them tucked into your shoulder like I taught you. When the dock doors open, give them the full pack and go. Is that understood? He paused, looking around the young faces, trying to emphasise his point. We don't have the firepower to put up a long fight. You empty your clip and take off, straight up to the axis. Burn all the propellant you've got and don't stop until you get to the loading tower at the north end. Fire in short bursts and pick your targets quickly. If the one you're shooting at takes cover, aim at someone else. Don't waste time. Aim at the neck where the armour is weakest. We know they don't have any aircraft capable of flying efficiently in our centrifugal gravity well, so we should be able to escape through the tube. Alex, the youngest boy, raised his hand tentatively, his slender frame dwarfed by the rifle in his lap. We won't do much damage with five rifles, will we? There is a small militia from the secondary factories who will be scattered throughout the villages in the south sector. They have improvised some light artillery from factory parts and should be able to put a decent amount of firepower into that hole when it opens. Our job is to pick off as many foot soldiers as we can. They won't be expecting fire from the loading cranes and should be distracted by the heavier fire from the houses below. Some of the guys from civil engineering have managed to find a way to trip the secondary dock hatches remotely, so we'll be able to open the doors before they finish boarding their landing craft. Hopefully we can kill 40 or 50 soldiers between us before they realise we're there. Amura could see the brave faces betrayed by their small trembling fingers. Only the 20-year-old Keone stood resolute, holding his rifle firmly, ready to defend his world, eyes bright and fearless. He looked at each young face in turn, making sure they heard him carefully. Remember everything I've said. Empty the clip and go. We're buying time, that's all. Kayoni stood up and gave Amura a toothy grin, tall, muscular body towering over the greying man. Enough speeches, old man. We'll all be as grey as you by the time we get going. Well, that's it. The three millionth download special Starship Sova that wasn't really going to be, but actually turned up to be there anyways. Just a big thank you to everyone, you know, Jan with his art there, fantastic work there. Everyone that kind of, you know, jumped on board and helped out with this show as well. Thank you so much. We will be here next week as well. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.